The following is presented by the Center for Political Innovation, CPI, Building American Socialism for the 21st Century. To learn more, visit cpiusa.org. It is wintertime in New York. It's not as cold as it usually is, but the wind is blowing. If you go outside in New York City, the wind, the wind is certainly blowing, and it is certainly, certainly wintertime. So welcome, everybody. Hit the like button. Hit the subscribe button. Hit the notifications bell. Always a pleasure to interact with everyone on here. I am sitting here, I am in Manhattan in front of an amazing, totally real painting, and we are about to have one of our amazing evening conversations. What a great time. So hit the like button, hit the subscribe button, hit the notifications bell. Please hit the notifications bell. So much for us to talk about tonight. Now, uh, the way we do things generally uh, is that I give my opening remarks, and the whole time I'm sitting there with a pen writing down your Super Chat questions. Then we do the roll call where I call you out as I see you, names and locations. And then from there, I answer your Super Chat questions until... The show is over, and that's how it works. The final part of the show is just me answering your super chat questions. So if you have something you want me to talk about, by all means, shoot me a super chat. Um, and that's what makes the second half of the show so much fun. Um, so if you want to post this around, you know, tweet this out, uh, Reddit, Facebook, Bunker Chan, Prol Wiki. Um, Instagram, uh, Twitter, Facebook, Facebook groups, Facebook chat lists, Facebook posts, anything. We're all great. We're all great. We're going to have a lovely conversation tonight. So hit that like button, hit that subscribe button. Be sure to crush the notifications bell. Be sure to crush the notifications bell uh, so that you get notified every time we do one of these trauma-based vandalism empire in the British and American empires. All right. Writing it down. Writing down the first super chat. British and American. Similar. Okay, I'm writing down the next Super Chat question. Wow, there you go. Initial applications for membership in CPI. Can't hang around today, but we'll catch up on YouTube later onwards. Thank you, Neil. You are a beloved member of this community. Folks, um, so right now, we're all thinking about Julian Assange. Inevitability. We're all thinking about Julian Assange. He's had a stroke in Belmarsh prison um, after being hauled up in the Ecuadorian embassy for years. Uh, he's then been turned over to British authorities. Um, and now they've ruled that he can be extradited to the United States. So the extradition proceedings will be beginning soon. Julian Assange, who 
only exposed war crimes. He himself didn't expose any war crimes. He's not himself a whistleblower. All he did was create a platform through which truth could be put forward. Information could be leaked to him uh, and uh, he exposed US war crimes. Um, and for that, he is being slow motion tortured uh, and it appears he could soon be on trial in Alexandria, uh, Virginia, United States. He could soon be facing trial in US federal court. So everyone who is concerned about freedom of the press, freedom of speech, the rights of challenging the status quo in the United States, um, as we have a peace talks. Everyone who is concerned about the ability of people to get up and challenge the status quo. Anyone who doesn't want publishers to be afraid to expose US war crimes should be concerned about the case. And I have learned that the issue of Julian Assange is very much one of those litmus tests. We've been seeing a lot of those litmus tests lately. When people are supporting Julian Assange, it means they are opponents of the status quo. It means they are opponents of the ruling class. When people are opposing Julian Assange, celebrating his arrest and extradition, not calling for his freedom, justifying it, it's a good sign that they are not opponents of the status quo, that they are rather defenders of the ruling class and defenders of the current order. It's a very, very good litmus test. Do you want to free Julian Assange or do you want Julian Assange to continue to be persecuted? Do you want the slow motion torture of a publisher dared expose U.S. war crimes, dared, created a plat dared to create a platform to enable people to expose U.S. War, war crimes. Do you want such a person to continue to be tortured or do you want him to be free? It's a very, very good, very, very good litmus test, a very, very good dividing line. Real anti-imperialists like Nicolas Maduro, like Jimmy Dore, they are supporting Julian Assange. Fake socialists like Hassan Piker and Vosh and Bernie Sanders are not supporting Julian Assange. AOC is not supporting Julian Assange. And this is, at the end of the day, a very, very good indicator. Now, there are other indicators that come along. When Jimmy Dore pushed force the vote, that was a very good test. Would the squad and the various socialists, supposedly in Congress, use the moment of a pandemic to demand a put up or shut up vote on Medicare for all? Would they do it or wouldn't they? Well, when 
when it became very, very trendy to bash Jimmy Dore on social media, the voices that attacked Jimmy Dore for daring demand that folks stand up for Medicare for All exposed themselves to be defenders of the establishment. However, the voices that agreed with Jimmy Dore, or at least defended Jimmy Dore's right to say it, those voices revealed themselves to be much more legitimate in their opposition to the status quo. And there are many, many issues like this that cut through the left like a knife, that cut through leftism and socialism like a knife. Who is just words and who really means what they say? You know, the fact that Tulsi Gabbard spoke up for Julian Assange means a great deal. Tulsi Gabbard is not perfect in many ways. She said various things we disagree with, but she spoke up for Julian Assange, whereas Bernie Sanders didn't. And Tulsi Gabbard also spoke up against the regime change operation against the Syrian Arab Republic, a Ba'ath socialist country in the Middle East. The U.S. government's been arming terrorists to try and overthrow the Syrian government. Tulsi Gabbard spoke up against it. Various other fake leftists have not. And every so often there's an issue like this, whether it's Syria, whether it's Libya and Gaddafi's Libya, whether it's Julian Assange, whether it's Force the Vote, that forces people to reveal what side they're in. It's very easy to beat your chest and say, ah, billionaires have lots of money. Ah, I want people to have health care in the United States. It's very easy to do that. It doesn't require you to take any real stands. If you just abstractly believe in socialism, you believe in an abstract concept of people having health care and jobs and billionaires having too much money, that doesn't really mean all, all that much. But when the rubber meets the road, when the rubber meets the road, When there's real issues like Julian Assange, like Syria, like force the vote, that reveals the true nature of who people really are. It reveals whether or not they're willing to take a stand on real issues, not simply abstract concepts. It's very, very important and it's very helpful in a way. Now, that brings me to what I wanted to talk about tonight, um, because I just recently wrote an article for Midwest Marks, which is a great website. If you ever get a chance to check out Midwest Marks, great, great website, great amount of readership, good folks. And Midwest Marks, uh, they recently published an article I wrote called Racism in America and the Hypocrisy of the Democracy Summit. And in that article, I talked about racism in the United States of America. I talked about, first of all, the killing of George Floyd, the treatment of African-Americans by police officers. And then from there, um, I went on to talk about other conditions faced by African-Americans in the United States. I talked about how in 2014, in the city of Detroit, a largely African-American city, we had the UN, two UN special reporteurs came forward and called out the fact that there was an unprecedented scale of water shutoffs 
a huge percentage of the city of Detroit did not have running water. The water was being shut off. Um, it was among the most vulnerable and poorest residents. We have the UN stepping up and saying that access to running water is not available to people in this major city in the United States, Bukele. Salvador. We have people stepping up and making clear that um, this isn't happening. The UN calling out the United States for the lack of access to water in a major city in the country. And that takes you back to 2014 to 2019. There was the Flint water crisis. We'll recall how water contaminated with lead uh, was being passed, the EPA and the inspections was, was missing it. Corruption was leading to a situation where 6,000 to 12,000 children were drinking water contaminated with lead that affected their brain development. You can talk about the fact, you know, many people have talked about Michelle Alexander's important book, The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness, how prisons for profit was pumped up. Now, all throughout this country, the prison sentences were increased. They did so much to try and create a situation where the prison population was rising and rising and rising. The conditions in the schools of many African-American folks are what they referred to as the school-to-prison pipeline. We now have a situation. In 2016, one in 38 Americans was under some form of correctional control, either on parole or, or locked up or I mean, on probation or something. One in 38 Americans was somehow under the thumb of the criminal justice system. We've talked about our very unequal educational system in the United States. One of the most well-respected scholars of educational theory is Jonathan Kozel. And Jonathan Kozel wrote a very important book, The Shame of a Nation, describing how unequal schooling is in the United States. African-American folks, low-income folks in the United States, writing it down, don't have access to a decent education. And then there was one scandal that I had to mention in my article that was just, it was just shocking to me. And I covered this as a reporter. I was working with Press TV at the time. And I did news stories about the New York City shop and frisk scandal. I don't know if people have heard about the shop and frisk scandal in New York City. I heard about this story and I was just horrified. I could not imagine this. It was beyond anything I could comprehend. It just seemed too horrible. But what Shop and Frisk was, was that these fancy stores in New York City, like Macy's, right? Uh, some of the other ones. I know that Macy's got a lot of flack for it. An African-American person would go into the store and they would purchase an expensive item. You know, a piece of jewelry, a designer belt. A designer belt, a piece of jewelry. And they would purchase it. 
And immediately after, they would hand over their credit card, they would run their credit card, they would be handed a receipt, and then, as they were walking out of the store, a police officer would shove them against the wall and put them in handcuffs. Why? Because they bought something. It was assumed that because these people were African-American, they must be low income, and they must not actually have the money to buy these items. So they were accused of credit card fraud simply on the basis of being, being African-American, shopping while black. I mean, it was a horrendous story. Uh, many of these high-end department stores were arresting people. People were getting put in handcuffs and arrested simply on the basis of being black and buying an expensive item. And there are some people who looked at this story and they said, oh, you know, people shouldn't be spending so much money. You shouldn't spend $400 on a belt. You shouldn't spend. That's missing the point. It's missing the point. You can't arrest somebody for buying something. If the person's actually committed credit card fraud, that's one thing. But if someone just buys something and on the assumption that because, because of their race, uh, that they, they must... They must have somehow committed credit card fraud to buy the item. That is, that is beyond disgusting. The shop and frisk scandal, it shocked me when I read about this. You don't talk about racism. I mean, that was just, that was pretty, pretty unbelievable. Now, there's been another story that I thought might be worth mentioning. And again, people have mixed feelings about the sex worker issue. Put all your mixed feelings aside. This was recently, this was in 2021. Uh, the New York Civil Liberties Union exposed, um, right. writing it down, the New York Civil Liberties Union exposed the activities of the NYPD Vice Squad. Now, the NYPD Vice Squad they deal with things like illegal gambling. They do, do deal with things like uh, like prostitution, like uh, you know licensing on strip clubs, you know alcohol licenses, etc. The NYPD Vice Squad was notoriously corrupt, um, and they would go throughout this city and they would find women who they wanted to arrest for prostitution. And they were apparently extracting sexual favors from them in exchange for not arresting them. Uh, you know, it's like, oh, we can arrest you for being a prostitute or you can, you know, give me, give me some sexual favors. You want to talk about despicable behavior. And there was actually one case that was just horrific where there was a single mother, a single mother was in an apartment with her children and an undercover police officer knocked on her door and on 12 times he asked her to pay money for sex. 12 times he said, I want to, I want to pay you money for sex. 12 times the woman said no. She had children in the house. There's a man beating on her door saying, hey, I want to pay you for sex. And she said no 12 times. And after the 12th time that this mother with her children, the single mom with her children, said no to an undercover police officer who was beating on the door, at that point, the NYPD burst in anyway and arrested her for prostitution anyway. Burst into her home and arrested her for prostitution after she had said no in front of her children 12 times. 
and she ended up losing custody of her children for two months while this was sorted out in the court system of New York City. Now, you want to talk about despicable behavior. I mean, this, this, is, this is some horrendous stuff. This is horrendous stuff. The reality of mass incarceration, the reality of lack of access to education, the reality of police brutality. Uh, I mean, you could talk about the shop and frisk scandal. I mean, this, this stuff is real and it is horrific. And it's what the black community in the United States faces. Now, could you imagine, imagine if Uyghur Muslims in China were subject to anything like this. This would be all over CNN. We'd be hearing about it. I mean, can you imagine, can you imagine if, um, if, if in Iran there was some religious minority that was subject to this kind of treatment? It would be all over TV. We'd be condemning it. The USA would be putting new sanctions on the country because of it. But here in the United States, this kind of thing has been going on for hundreds of years. And it's only because of years of protest and organizing and dissent that anyone has talked about this. Really, I mean, it's only because of hundreds of years of activism, of resistance, that anyone has talked about this. Now, there is widespread awareness about racism in the United States, you know, Black Lives Matter, et cetera, but it's taken generations of work. And it's worth noting that many of the politicians who are very high up in our system right now and who are claiming that they're part of this woke awakening in the United States have been very much key in setting this situation up. For example, uh, Joe Biden has his notorious crime bill from 1994 that was all about increasing the sentences, ratcheting up mass incarceration. And I've told you all about Kamala Harris and how her career as a criminal prosecutor in California was all about driving up the rate of incarceration in the country, about how she tried to keep an innocent man on death row, blocking evidence. Uh, the, you know, She locked up the parents of children who were truant from school and then gleefully bragged about it. Why crisis? Writing it down. Kamala Harris, the queen of mass incarceration, as I called her in my book, which great member of our community, Char Char Darling, is in the process of, of recording as an audio book. Um, Joe Biden with his crime bill. Hillary Clinton with her super predators. A lot of, little known fact about Hillary Clinton. People don't talk about this. But when Hillary Clinton and her husband, Bill Clinton, uh, were the first family in the state of Arkansas, when Bill was the governor and she was, she was the governor's wife, uh, they actually had basically slaves in the governor's mansion. This hasn't gotten a lot of publicity, right? It's not gotten a lot of attention, but you can look this up. But um, in order to, quote unquote, save money, instead of hiring regular household servants, cooks, cleaning people, chefs, they had prisoners work in their mansion for free. Did you know? I mean, you can look this up. I did not make this up, but... 
Hillary Clinton's Hillary Clinton and Bill had slaves, basically prisoners who worked in their house for free, uh, and and waited on them and uh, and cleaned the place and served them food. People who were doing time who did not get paid. People who were doing time, prisoners, prisoners were their household servants. You know, they cooked the food for Hillary and Bill and little Chelsea. They swept the floors. They, I mean, it, it was it was absolutely horrendous. And, you know, Hillary Clinton went around talking about super predators. Oh, black people are super predators. There's these dangerous young super predators. We've got to lock them up. Hillary Clinton went around, you know, talking, getting everyone so scared. And Bill Clinton talked about the need for harsher prison sentences. Um you know, all these all these Democrats that are now trying to tell you how woke they are, they are neck deep in this mass incarceration evil. Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, Hillary and Bill Clinton, they had no problem engaging in this kind of nasty behavior. Barack Obama was president of the United States and he was supposed to solve these problems. Remember that? That's almost like a laugh line. But after Barack Obama, I remember when Barack Obama was running for president, he gave this speech. And uh, he gave this speech called A More Perfect Union. And it was supposed to all be about the race question in the United States. And I remember, you know, sometimes liberals can be a little bit more obnoxious than conservatives. I'll just be real about that. Remember, you know, for a couple weeks after Barack Obama gave his More Perfect Union speech, every liberal that I knew at this, you know, in my little in my little college in Ohio and my parents and every liberal told me about how important Barack Obama's more perfect union speech was. Wow, it was just one of the most defining speeches on the issue of race. Oh my God, that, no one remembers that speech now. That speech is a historical footnote, but Barack Obama's more perfect union speech set the stage for Barack Obama was gonna become president and there was going to never more be racial injustice. He was going to bring the country together. What happened under Barack Obama's presidency? In 2014, the city of Ferguson, Missouri, became the site of a prolonged rebellion against police brutality after the killing of Michael Brown and the horrendous treatment of the population there. I mean, read about what the population endured. Uh, I went, I actually went to Ferguson, Missouri. I made a documentary about Ferguson, Missouri. Uh, it's called Hands Up, Don't Shoot. Uh, you, can, you, can, you can check it out. I interviewed people in Ferguson. And in addition to that, in addition to that, you'll remember the next year in 2015, the city of Baltimore went up in flames after the killing of Freddie Gray. And the National Guard was sent into the city of Baltimore to put down a massive urban rebellion. So Barack Obama's presidency that was supposed to be an answer to racial injustice, was supposed to bring the country closer together, was supposed to resolve all of this, kind of did the opposite. And then we all saw what happened after the brutal killing of George Floyd. And right now, there's probably people watching this and saying, well, Caleb, you sound like CNN. Caleb, you sound like MSNBC. 
We hear this everywhere. Well, you do hear it everywhere. Yes, you hear it everywhere. But the only reason you hear it everywhere is because for a long time you didn't hear it everywhere. And communists, communists stood with the black community and wouldn't let it go. Communists wouldn't let it go. You go back to the 1920s. The Communist Party was one of the only major political parties in the United States that openly was, I think, the only major political party in the United States that called for equal rights for African Americans. 1920s, uh, the Communist Party of the United States, they came out with their Black Belt thesis. And they maintain that African-Americans in the United States are a colonized people. They are an oppressed nation within U.S. borders. And that as an oppressed nation, they have the right to self-determination. You, you can recall that in the 1930s, you know, Troy Davis, I'll talk about that. In the 1930s, the Communist Party had a campaign poster that showed where the independent black republic would be, uh, where they would create uh, an autonomous black republic for African-Americans, the Black Belt South. The, one of the major groups that merged into the Communist Party was called the African Blood Brotherhood. And it was a group of African-Americans who trained other African-Americans in the use of firearms to protect themselves from the Ku Klux Klan. Um, and Harry Haywood, was the leader of the African Blood Brotherhood. And Harry Haywood became a very prominent leader of the Communist Party USA during the 1930s. And he wrote a very good autobiography called Black Bolshevik. The very famous African-American poet Langston Hughes joined the Communist Party. Paul Robeson, the, I mean, the award-winning athlete, uh, award-winning musician, civil rights pioneer. Paul Robeson was a member of the Communist Party. And the Communist Party focused on fighting against racism. You can go read the book Hammer and Ho by Robin D.G. Kelly that talks about the amazing work the Communist Party of Alabama did during the 1930s. Uh, you can talk about there was Angelo Herndon, who was an African-American man uh, who was leafleting for the Communist Party, leafleting for unemployment councils. And he was arrested and sentenced to death in the state of Alabama because they had a law forbidding black insurrection. It was a law that went back to the time of slavery that said you could not call on blacks to revolt against whites. And they interpreted his unemployment council leaflets calling for a workers' revolution as a call for black insurrection. And that was punishable by death. And he was sentenced to death and he would have been executed if it had not been for the US Supreme Court freeing him in 1937. Uh, he spent a long time on death row, wrote an amazing memoir called You Cannot Kill the Working Class, uh, Angelo Herndon. And after the Second World War, as the Cold War got going, the Communist Party of the United States fought for African Americans. In 1954, Emmett Till, a 14-year-old African-American young man was lynched for the crime of whistling at a white woman, allegedly. And the killers were 
acquitted, and there was a photograph. His mother had a photograph of his mutilated body taken. And the Soviet Union took that picture and they sent it all over the world. And I will never forget when I was in high school. I'm from a little town in Ohio called Orville. And my high school history teacher, who liked to go through the archives of the town's newspapers, found, found a news item from my little town, Orville, Ohio, and I believe it was from 1951. And the news item, the headline on the newspaper in my little town, the headline was, Take That, Uncle Joe. And it had a picture of an African-American family. And the article began with a quote from Joseph Stalin about how the United States persecutes African-Americans and is a quote-unquote racist country. And they said that clearly this couldn't be true because a black family had bought a house in Orville, Ohio. The first black family in my little town of Orville, Ohio had bought a house, so clearly there was no racism. Take that, Uncle Joe, was the headline. I'll never forget seeing that news item. I wish I could find it. Take that, Uncle Joe. But that shows how key the Communist Party was in the fight for African-American rights. 1951 was the same year that the Soviet Union gave a platform at the United Nations to William L. Patterson, a member of the Communist Party, an African-American leader of the Communist Party, to present a petition called We Charge Genocide, exposing racism in the United States. We Charge Genocide. During the 1950s, one of the main organizations of the Communist Party was called the Civil Rights Congress. The Civil Rights Congress was a group that provided lawyers to African-Americans who were charged with, charged with crimes in the Jim Crow South, a legal defense fund. And the Civil Rights Congress was actually listed by the U.S. Department of Justice as a subversive organization. The Civil Rights Congress was listed as a subversive organization, and they passed a federal law that said that the Civil Rights Congress could not put up bail for anyone because it was considered to be a subversive organization. You go back to the early years of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and the Montgomery bus boycott. What is the main argument that right-wingers had against Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.? What did they say about Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.? They said, he's a commie, he's a communist. In fact, they had a billboard that they put up and it had a photograph and it was, it was a photograph of Dr. Martin Luther King. And it said, Dr. Martin Luther King at a communist training school. And it's true, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. did go to an activist training school at one point. He went to some event at an African, uh, an activist training school that was run by the Communist Party. And the reason that the Southern racists were marching around with signs that said race mixing is communism. The reason for that was because everybody knew in the 1950s that there had only been one political party, one political party that had consistently fought for the African-American community against racism, and that was the Communist Party. That was the Communist Party. 
There's the Communist Party of Paul Robeson, the Communist Party of Langston Hughes, the Communist Party of Angelo Herndon and Henry Winston. The Communist Party had fought racism consistently. And in fact, the term civil rights, which became the rallying cry of, of the 1950s and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., this term civil rights, that had been started by the Communist Party when they formed their Civil Rights Congress. You can Google this, the Civil Rights Congress. The Civil Rights Congress was started by the Communist Party, declared to be a subversive organization. And that's when the term civil rights caught on. Now I can keep talking about this and I'm going to. As you go a little bit further, 1963, Robert F. Williams was the leader of the NAACP in Monroe, North Carolina. And he wanted the right of children in Monroe, North Carolina, who were African-American, to go swimming in the public swimming pools, right? Taxpayer money had paid for the swimming pool in Monroe, North Carolina. But only white people got to go into the swimming pool. Well, Robert F. Williams, the leader of the NAACP of North Carolina, of Monroe, North Carolina, said that if our tax money is gonna pay for this swimming pool, our children ought to be able to go swim in the swimming pool also. So Robert F. Williams began protesting, and the NAACP of North Carolina began protesting outside the swimming pool in Monroe, North Carolina, for the right of African-Americans to swim in a public swimming pool. In response to their peaceful demonstrations demanding the right to swim in a swimming pool, the Ku Klux Klan came to their rallies and started shooting at them and started threatening the leaders of the Monroe, North Carolina NAACP. So Robert F. Williams started his own chapter of the National Rifle Association, the NRA, and he trained the board of the NAACP of North Carolina in firearm usage, and they brought firearms with them to their picket line outside of the swimming pool. They said, you know what? If they're gonna shoot at us when we protest for the right to have a swimming pool, the right to have access to the swimming pool, we're gonna bring guns so we can shoot back. And they brought firearms to their picket line. And in response, in response to that, the Ku Klux Klan showed up and there was a shootout. And a couple Ku Klux Klansmen bit the dust. And of course, Robert F. Williams and his spouse, Mae Mallory, were charged with murder. So they fled the country. They fled the country, they were charged with murder and they had to flee the country. Where do you think Robert F. Williams went after he'd been charged with murder by the US government for defending his peaceful protest from Ku Klux Klan terrorism? Where do you think Robert F. Williams went? Cuba and China. There is a photograph of Robert F. Williams shaking hands with Mao Zedong. And in 1963, Mao Zedong had a long meeting. Mao Zedong, the chairman of the Chinese Communist Party, the leader of the People's Republic of China, the most populous country in the world, had a meeting with Robert F. Williams. A long meeting where they discussed the issue of racism. And after that, Mao made a public statement 
in support of the black liberation struggle in the United States. That you didn't know this, this is not history that you're being taught. This is what Mao said in 1963. He said, an American black leader now taking refuge in Cuba, Mr. Robert Williams, former president of the Monroe, North Carolina chapter of the NAACP, has twice this year asked me for a statement in support of the American black people and their struggle against racial discrimination. On behalf of the Chinese people, I wish to take this opportunity to express our resolute support for African-Americans and their struggle against racial discrimination and for freedom and equal rights. I call on the workers, the peasants, the revolutionary intellectuals, the enlightened elements of the bourgeoisie, and other enlightened persons of all colors in the world, whether white, black, yellow, or brown, to unite to oppose the racial discrimination practiced by U.S. imperialism, and to support the American black people in their struggle against racial discrimination. In the final analysis, national struggle is a matter of class struggle. Among the whites in the United States, it is only the reactionary ruling circles who oppress the black people. They can in no way represent the workers, the farmers, the revolutionary intellectuals, and other enlightened persons who comprise the overwhelming majority of white people. At present, it is the handful of imperialists headed by the United States and their supporters, the reactionaries in different countries who are oppressing, committing aggression against, and menacing the overwhelming majority of nations and peoples in the world. That was Mao Zedong. Chairman Mao Zedong made that statement, and there's more to it. It's a very long document. And that was Mao speaking up for the rights of African Americans. And from Cuba, Robert F. Williams started a radio program he started broadcasting a radio program from Cuba called Radio Free Dixie. And from Cuba, he started broadcasting calls for black people in the United States to rise up and fight for their rights. Radio Free Dixie. Um, and little known fact, but um, that statement that Mao Zedong gave uh, calling for the liberation of black people in the United States uh, it was distributed. Over 20,000 copies of it were distributed um, in 1963 at Dr. Martin Luther King's uh, March on Washington. A lot of people don't know this, but you know the famous March on Washington where Dr. Martin Luther King gave his speech, I Have a Dream. It was a huge gathering, a huge mobilization in support of the Civil Rights Act. 20,000 copies of that statement were handed out by the Workers' World Party. The Workers' World Party, a communist group in the United States, made it their mission to hand out 20,000 copies of Mao's speech. And the headline that they put on at the top of the document, the headline said, one quarter of humanity is on your side. One quarter of humanity is on your side. 20,000 copies of that were distributed. 20,000 civil rights marchers got a copy of a statement from Mao, and it said, one quarter of humanity is on your side. Now, interesting side note. I actually find this kind of what you can call movement history to be very interesting. So the Workers' World Party, they distributed the statement of Mao. And the reason they did that was because the Workers' World Party was one of the only communist groups that was in full support of black nationalism at that time, right? The Communist Party at that point in 1957, the Communist Party said that black people did not constitute a nation. 
uh, that they were they were facing discrimination, but they were not an oppressed nation. The Socialist Workers Party supported Malcolm X, but it was kind of confused and had different positions. But the Workers World Party had been big supporters of black nationalism. And one thing in, in the Workers World Party was that there were many black nationalists who had joined the Workers World Party who hated the civil rights movement. Uh, and, uh, you know, they felt that the civil rights movement was controlled by white people. Uh, they supported uh, Malcolm X, they supported the Nation of Islam, and they did not like uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and his call for racial integration. They believed in a separate black territory in the black belt. And so Sam Marcy, the leader of the Workers' World Party, he really wanted the party, the Workers' World Party, which was very new at that point, it was only four years old, he really wanted them to attend the Civil Rights March, the 1963, you know, March on Washington. But most of the African-American members of the Workers' World Party didn't want to go. They hated Dr. Martin Luther King. They thought he was a sellout. They didn't believe in racial integration. They wanted an independent black republic. Um, so Sam Marcy made a compromise with them. He said, you can go, uh, but the only thing we'll distribute is Mao's statement, Mao's statement. Uh, in support of the civil rights movement. And that they agreed to do. They liked Mao. He was a third world revolutionary anti-imperialist. So they would go to the civil rights march, but they would only go there and distribute Mao's statement. And that was the compromise. Fascinating history. Very, very fascinating history. I understand, um, you know, one of the leaders of the Workers' World Party from those years became a prominent leader of the Nation of Islam uh, in later years. Uh, I, I don't remember what his name was. Um, but that's very interesting. The other thing is that the 1963 I Have a Dream march in Washington, D.C., uh, the Communist Party was told not to attend. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was constantly being accused of being a communist. So Dr. Martin Luther King's allies, like Bayard Rustin and others, called up Gus Hall and they said, don't come. They said, just don't come. We don't want the, the media to see that you're here. Um, and so the Communist Party did not officially attend the 1963 march on Washington because uh, Dr. Martin Luther King asked them not to because it would hurt the image. He felt it would hurt the image of the civil rights movement. However, many members of the Communist Party went um, but but the Communist Party was officially asked not to attend the march because it would hurt the image of the civil rights movement. They'd say, ah, oh, see, it's a communist march. And out of respect for the wishes of the black community, the Communist Party did not publicly attend that march. Now, another interesting thing is that there were, that, there were, there were a number of communist groups around at the time. The, the other major communist group in the United States at that point was called the the, um, the Socialist Workers' Party. They were the Trotskyite Party. And the Socialist Workers' Party, they, uh, they had a newspaper called The Militant. It was called The Militant. Uh, and they attended the march, and they brought with them an issue of their newspaper, The Militant. And the front, the headline of The Militant that they brought was, it said, Freedom Party Now. And it was a call on black people to break with the Democratic Party. Freedom Party Now. Um, and they printed a speech from the March on Washington that had been banned, uh, had been banned. I don't know if you know this, but there was a, a, a you know, a, a very prominent um, civil rights leader, and he was in his 20s at this time, who went on to become a member of Congress, John Lewis. And John Lewis was a, an organizer with Dr. Martin Luther King, and he felt that John F. Kennedy and the Democrats had stabbed the civil rights movement in the back. 
And so he gave a, he wrote a speech that he was going to give called, you know, saying, what side is the government on? Why is Kennedy not doing more for civil rights? Why is Kennedy not fighting uh, the, the, you know, the Dixiecrats, the Jim Crow members of, you know, of, of his own party? Uh, why is he not fighting them harder? And John Lewis, uh, he, he was banned from giving this speech. Uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Bayard Rustin said, nope, you can't criticize the Democrats. You cannot criticize John F. Kennedy. You cannot criticize the Democrats from the stage. So this speech was banned, and John Lewis was banned from speaking at the 1963 um, you know, March on Washington. Now, interestingly, in their newspaper, um, and they reprinted his speech in their newspaper, and they um, they then um, at that point uh, they distributed you know the, the issue of the militant with Freedom Party now so that's how the three major communist parties in the United States responded to that very historic speech we all see that in school right the image of, of Dr Martin Luther King you know speaking I have a dream you know the very famous speech well the the communists in the United States all had to figure out how they were going to react to it and that's how they reacted to the situation. Um, and I, I just think that's a very fascinating piece of history, very fascinating piece of history. But the Black Panthers were very much inspired by Mao and China and by North Korea. The Black Panthers loved North Korea. All these people you know, who think that, uh, that anyone who supports uh, North Korea is a Nazi, they're talking about the Black Panthers because the Black Panthers loved North Korea. They sent delegations to North Korea. You know. Um, you know, the Black Panthers were very much, you know, they studied the Juche ideology of Kim Il-sung. Uh, you know, their newspaper had a lot of articles defending North Korea. So the claim that uh, that North Korea is somehow fascist, that would make the Black Panthers fascist. Um, but, you know, 1968, after Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated, Mao Zedong wrote another statement in support of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And it's only because of decades of struggle by the black community by communists and others that now in the United States, there is this awakening around the issue of police brutality. Um, you know, I remember, you know, when I was a communist activist in Cleveland, Ohio, you know, there were many cases of police brutality. I went to court with many police brutality victims. There was an organization in Cleveland called Black on Black Crime Incorporated, headed by Art McCoy did amazing work uh, in fighting against police brutality. And I've said many times that that organization, Black on Black Crime Incorporated, is the closest thing that I've ever seen to what a real communist party looks like. A real communist party is not a book club. A real communist party is not a, a group of people who campaign for Democrats. It's not a bunch of people screaming on a street corner about Trotsky. A real communist party is a center of the community. And this organization in Cleveland, Black on Black Crime Incorporated, they would meet every Wednesday and there'd be 80 or 90 people at their meetings. And they would talk about the, the speed light cameras and the tickets from the speed light cameras. Uh, they would talk about the rent in the neighborhood. Uh, they would talk about police brutality. They would talk about, about municipal regulations. And it was a community assembly. And if you go to Venezuela, that's what the communists do. That's what the Bolivarian circles do. If you go to, if you go to Angola, if you go to, uh, you go to India, you go to the Kerala, the, the region where the Communist Party runs it, they're at the center of the community. 
They're the, the people that everyone can come to. In the 1930s in the United States, everyone in the neighborhood knew who the local Communist Party organizer was. And if there was a problem in the community, they would go to the Communist Party organizer in Brooklyn and say, how do we solve this? And it was the same with the Black Panthers in the 1970s. Everyone in the black community knew the Black Panthers. And knew, when there was a problem in the neighborhood, uh, the Black Panthers were the, who you went to. There's a very famous story about how in Harlem, in New York City, the garbage wasn't being collected. And because the garbage in Harlem was not being collected, um, the people in the community were outraged. They went to the Black Panther Party and they said, what are we going to do? The garbage in our neighborhood is not being collected. So the Black Panthers collected the garbage in the neighborhood. They collected the garbage, but instead of taking it to the city dump, they took it to the center of a major roadway and they poured gasoline on it and they lit it on fire. And from then on, the garbage got collected on time, right? It was that kind of community struggles. That's what the Communist Party used to do. That's what the Black Panther Party used to do. And it, that's what the communists in Venezuela, they told me very similar stories about what they did in Venezuela. I, I mean, during the 1990s, as the Bolivarian socialist movement was building up, they did the exact same kind of thing, collecting the garbage. They organized neighborhood strikes in Venezuela when the, uh, when the electricity would go off because of the corrupt free market regime imposed by the United States in the 1990s. The whole neighborhood would refuse to go to work until the power came back on. Community strikes. Right? These are the kinds of struggle. This is what a real communist organization does. Um, right? Mafia used to combat communists. This is what a real communist party does. It's at the center of the community. It's bringing people together. Um, and Black on Black Crime Incorporated, this black nationalist community organization in Cleveland, you know, and there were white people that were involved with it. I went to a few of their meetings. Uh, they would allow the Workers' World Party and the, the RCP to attend their meetings. Um, and they, they brought people together. It was pretty, I mean, that's what a real communist organization is. It's a community organization. You look at revolutionary movements around the world, this is what they do. Um, you know, on the issue of police brutality, I remember I would tell people that I was in school with, I was in college, I would tell them about the police brutality cases in Cleveland. And people that I went to college with would say, that's not true, that never happens. You know, police, I, my cousin's a cop, he, cops never do that kind of thing. That's just made up, that's, that's not real. Um, you know, that was the response, right? You know, police brutality, that doesn't happen. I know police. I, you know, that was the response. But now the whole country is waking up to police brutality. Yes, now it's getting mainstream attention. Now Kamala Harris, who basically made her career as a vicious prosecutor, pretends that she cares about it. Now, now Joe Biden, who, you know, had with his ruthless crime bill, he pretends he cares about it, right? Now, even Hillary Clinton, uh, who, you know, who had her slaves in her, her governor's mansion. She had literal, you know, prisoners working for free, waiting on her hand and foot at the governor of Arkansas's man mansion. She, even she pretends she cares about this issue. Well, it's only because of class struggle. It's only because of communists and because of the Soviet Union and China and Cuba. And it's only because of the Black Panthers and the Communist Party of the United States and the Socialist Workers Party and the Workers World Party. It's only because of years of organizing from groups like the Nation of Islam, from Marcus Garvey, uh, you know, the, the Republic of New Africa, the African People's Socialist Party, 
It's only because of years and years of, of resistance and organizing that there's any, any awareness around this issue. And that's what I, I felt like needed to be pointed out. And that's why I wrote that article for Midwest Marx, because the conversation that we're having now, you know, this woke conversation, ignores everything that's gone on to the current situation and how we got where we are right now. It's good that people are finally waking up to the horrors of police brutality. It's good. It's good that there's awareness about it. Now, I wish that this could be understood in terms of class struggle and anti-imperialism. I wish this could be understood in terms of national liberation and national oppression. Uh, the woke white privilege narrative is not politically in line. It's not to say there's not white privilege, there certainly is, but the narrative, the postmodern privilege politics narrative is not the correct line, right? The correct line is the line of the Black Panthers, it's the line of the Communist Party, it's, it's you know, understanding these things from the standpoint of national oppression and capitalism and imperialism. But regardless, the fact that there is so much awareness, there's so much awareness about this issue is only because of years and years of hard work by the black community, by black revolutionaries, and by white communists who aligned with them, and by the socialist countries of the world, like China, like Venezuela, well, not, I mean, like Venezuela became socialist very recently, but like Cuba, like the Soviet Union, et cetera. So I just wanted to, to highlight that. And, and that's what I was talking about in my article. Uh, Midwest, Midwest Marx uh, published my article on this issue. I, I appreciate it. I'm really honored to be published on Midwest Marx. It's a great blog, great website. That's what I wanted to say. So those are my opening remarks, folks. Um, I hope that was helpful, but hit the like button, hit the subscribe button, hit the notifications bell, uh, and um, yeah, names and locations, names and locations. I'll call you out as I see you, names and locations. Who's with us tonight? Names and locations. Names and locations. Who is with us? Who's with us? Andrew Ray in Atlanta, Ryan in Oakland. Melbourne, Australia, JT24 in Mississippi, Odario from Italy, Quinn and Meredith in Washington, Danny in Illinois, Diego in Southern California, Omar in Toronto, Robert from Australia, Leipzig, East Germany, Jenny Lin in Cincinnati, Ohio, Paragas in Los Angeles, David in China, Tristan in Maryland, Micah in Las Vegas, Marta in Poland, Glasgow, Scotland, Mike in North Carolina, Emma in Ontario, Canada, Rees from Adelaide, Australia, Temple City, California, St. David's, Bermuda, Restless Native, Springfield, Missouri, Allen in Utah, Michael Rastarucci in Ithaca, New York. Shout out to you, Michael, good friend of the program. Iraq, Japan, Deb in Mexico. Shout out to you, Deborah. Balthazar in Oakland, Dario from Brooklyn. Shout out to you, Dario, good friend, good friend. Kieran from San Diego, David Fox, Bendigo, Australia, West Virginia, Huntsville. Io Hillary in New York City, shout out to you, Io. All right, Mo in Toronto, Canada, Hong Kong, London, Chicago, Smedley, says Jason. Shout out to you, Jason, beloved member of our community as well. Radu in Romania, Carolyn in Staten Island, Sydney, Australia, Miami, Minneapolis, Joanne from Holland, Madrid, Mindanao to Midwest, Lumpia Logic, Captain Waffles, Florida, Christian in Northwest New Jersey, already halfway through We Are City Builders. Fantastic. Again, I'm really glad you like it. That's the CPI Educational Manual. Sydney from Australia, 
no, it's Sydney, Australia is the, the location, right? It's the city. It's where they got a big opera house. Corona, California. Julio in Texas. Morocco, Texas. Khadija in Brooklyn. Shout out to you, Khadija. Sweden. Alex in the Netherlands. JR in Kalamazoo. Andy in Maine. Wilmington. Wilmington. Iraq, China, Dorset, England, California, Michigan, Enoch, Australia, Western Pennsylvania, the North Pole, ho, 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 Los Angeles, hello from Chicago, Denmark, San Diego, California, Naples, Florida, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Helen Woolley in Melbourne. The list is getting long. Yes, it is. We're a growing community, growing stronger every day. Kendall in San Diego, Herb Bryant, Sam Netten, Incheon, Korea, Detroit, Michigan, Houston, Texas, Arturo from Alaska. Wow. Tunbridge Wells, UK, Calgary, Canada. Wow. Wow. Folks, I want to take this opportunity. Joe the, Ga Joe the Red. Joe Gale in Nassau County. Shout out to you, Joe. Jordan in Washington. We got a lot of folks in Washington. We're trying to set up a local in Washington, so shoot me, uh, shoot me an email if you're in Washington. I'm trying to connect all the Washington folks. There we go. So folks, uh, if you can, I would really appreciate if you shot a donation to the John Brown Volunteers Texas campaign. Right now, our great John Brown Volunteers are in Texas organizing, fighting for the rights of the people, trying to build deep roots in the community. They're doing great work. They've been having classes on the Paris Commune. Uh, they've been building connections with religious organizations, building connections uh, with the NAACP and local organizations there. Um, they're doing great stuff, but they really could use, we could use support uh, in making this campaign successful. We will be having an event in Texas, uh, March 15th. So mark, mark your calendar. But if you can shoot a donation, the link is right down below. If you can shoot a small donation or a big donation, all donations are deeply appreciated to support the work of the John Brown Volunteers in Texas. Be sure to be sure to sure to hit the button. Uh, be sure to shoot us a PayPal donation. The link is right down there. We could really use your support. It would be very very helpful this holiday season to support the work of the John Brown volunteers and the work that they are doing. Maintaining this full-time outreach team is difficult, but it's worth it because the work that they are doing is really important. So be sure to, you know, hit the link down there and send us, send us a contribution. It would be greatly, greatly appreciated. They're doing great work. I'm so proud of what they're doing. Shout out to the John Brown volunteers out there. Shout out to all of you. You all are amazing and beloved members of our community and you're doing great stuff, doing great work. I wish I could be there with you on the ground. I wish that I could do such a thing. So I've got a number of super chat questions here and we'll just start going through them. Trauma-based vandalism, the British and the Roman Empire similarities. Well, there are some obviously some big differences, right? One empire was start, you know, was was around thousands of years ago. The British Empire was in the 1800s. Um, it's the British Empire. The British financial system is very much intact. I mean, the literal empire where Britain had colonies that that technically ended after the Second World War. 
Um, but economically, I would say British finance still dominates the world. We've still got HSBC Bank. What does that stand for? Hong Kong Shanghai Banking System. More focused version. All right, but um, in terms of in terms of the British Empire versus the Roman Empire, one of the big similarities was basically the economic foundation. Right, the British Empire. It was believed that the way they would dominate the world. In fact, the first book of geopolitics. Politics was about how the way to dominate the world was with a navy. And there was a, a theoretician of the British Empire who argued that the way to dominate the world was with a navy. And what the British Empire was about, it was about controlling trade routes. They were the global middleman in trade because they had this giant navy. And if you wanted to trade on the open seas, you had to go through them. They controlled the trade routes. And thank you, Khadija, for the super chat. I do appreciate it. They controlled the trade routes. Uh, and because they controlled the trade routes, they were the global middleman in trade. And that is the Atlanticist model of empire. And the Romans did the same thing. There's an expression that says all roads lead to Rome. And what that meant was if you were part of the Roman Empire and you wanted to build a road of your own connecting to some other part of the Roman Empire, you couldn't do it. All roads led to Rome. They were the middleman, the middleman in global trade. All trade in the empire was done through them. That was, that was the way the Roman Empire was set up. Uh, it was set up to be the global middleman in trade. Um, and that was very much the way the British were set up. Uh, you talk about how the British went to India. They burned down all the textile looms, forced them to import their cloth from Britain. When someone asked on here about Gandhi. Well, what was Gandhi arrested for? And thank you, Herb Bryant, for the super chat. What was Mahatma Gandhi arrested for? What was his crime? His crime was making his own salt. I don't know if people remember this, but they had a law in Britain. All right, the British imposed a law on India that it was illegal to make your own salt. So what Gandhi did is he went to the ocean, he got some salt water, and he made a fire, and he boiled, boiled the water in order to get his own salt. And he made a point of doing this in front of the police, and he got arrested for it. Why was it a crime to boil salt water? Why was that a crime? It was a crime because the British had a monopoly on trade. They controlled the trade route. And if you boiled your own, you know, your own salt, if you got salt water and boiled it and had your own salt, then you weren't buying salt from a British importing company. They wanted to be the middleman on trade, and if you were making your own salt, you weren't buying it from them. That's imperialism. That is imperialism. Right? And this is the American Revolution was largely about this. The British didn't want the United States to economically develop. And there's there's two sides to that. If you read the, the documents of the American Revolution, if you read the Declaration of Independence, there's some pretty awful stuff in there, but there's some, some stuff in there that's interesting. But it's pretty clear, the main grievance, if you read the Declaration of Independence, it's very blatant what it's about. It's about economics, right? You talk about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And, but if you really read the document, if you really read the Declaration of Independence, Thomas Jefferson's document, he's basically saying, we want to expand our economy 
you won't let us. That's basically what he is saying. If you read the, you know, go and read it. You know, and it's, it's really kind of weird how, how few people have read these kind of documents. You'd think we'd all be required to read them in school, but the United States has gotten so postmodern and non-ideological, they're not even shoving the ideology of the bourgeoisie down our throats anymore. So if you actually are interested in what the American Revolution was about, both good and bad, because it's a pretty bad document, um, one of the very clear grievance, I mean, the, it's very clear, the thrust of the colonists' grievance, the thrust of the Declaration of Independence is they want the economy of the United States to expand and the British Empire won't allow it. The British want the United States, they want Boston and New York to be trading hubs and Virginia to be trading hubs, right? They want there to be naval bases there so the British can base their ships there and control the trade routes with them. And Thomas Jefferson and George Washington and Alexander Hamilton and all of them, they say, no, we actually want the USA to become a thriving, vibrant economy. And the British Empire said, no, we don't believe in expanding economics. We don't believe in economic growth. We just want, you know, we just want little bases around the world so we can control the trade routes. And if you read one of the grievances, but this is mixed, right? It's not all good because one of the grievances is that Thomas Jefferson and George Washington, they wanted to go kill all the Native Americans, right? They, they, the King of England, King George, drew a line down, you know, the United States. He said, we're not going to go across here. The French, you know, they get control of this, the, everything past this line the French have. And the French were not interested in setting up colonies. They were, you know, having the French Revolution and the Napoleonic Wars, and they there wasn't really much colonialism going on. I mean, Louisiana was a little bit different. But other than that, they drew this line, and they said you can't cross it. Well, Thomas Jefferson and George Washington, they wanted to cross it. And, uh, you know, they also wanted to take, you know, they wanted to fight the Native Americans more. Okay, that's that's not good, obviously. That's genocide. That's, that's murderous. So that was the bad side of the U.S. economy expanding. But on top of that, they wanted to build up their cities. Um, they wanted to have their own industries. They wanted to have domestic U.S. industries. That's what the Boston Tea Party was about. You ever heard of the Boston Tea Party? That was about the fact that uh, there was a law that basically gave British corporations a monopoly on imports to the United States. Uh, and the colonists were quite angry about it, right? So they committed an ass, that mass act of property destruction, and they took a bunch of tea from British corporations, they dumped it in the ocean. Um, you know, th that largely, the British Empire didn't want the U.S. domestic economy to grow. They wanted the 13 colonies to just be kind of hubs for their naval empire, for their Atlantis's naval empire. Whereas... The farmers, the small, the planters, the New England planters, they were called. Those were, those were, you know, Protestant religious fanatics who'd come over to the United States on boats and had very fanatical religious beliefs, and and they wanted the the U.S. economy to become vibrant. And uh, you know, there was there was a desire for the U.S. economy to expand. Now later, you had the National Bank that was created. Alexander Hamilton, uh, you know, constructed lighthouses up and down the United States to create more access to the shipping routes. And then he started imposing tariffs uh, on imports and exports from the United States as a way of funding the U.S. economy, et cetera. Uh, but, but yes, the, the battle in the American Revolution was should the USA be able to have its own domestic economy or not? And the you know founders of the United States wanted the USA to have its own domestic economy. And the, the British financial system did not. And that was what the fight was about. And it's very interesting because you can compare this to Rome, right? In Rome, you'll recall Carthage. 
right? The city-state of Carthage in Tunisia. It was an African, North African city-state of Carthage. It went to war with Rome, and it was defeated, right? You know, there's the famous, you know, um, you know uh, Hannibal was the leader of Carthage, and he crossed the Alps on elephants. He very famously rode elephants across the Alps to fight the Romans. Well, they lost. Carthage lost to Rome. So what did the Romans do after they defeated Carthage and they made all the people of Carthage into slaves? And with Carthage, it was every last person. Carthage had fought Rome so much, they said we are going to, they enslaved every last person. They made every single person in Carthage a slave. But then what did the Romans do? What did they do after that? Did they say, all right, you're all now slaves. Get to work, you know, growing crops for us. Get to work mining minerals for us. No. The Romans went to Carthage and they burned the city. And then they took salt from the ocean and they ground salt into the soil. They ground salt into the soil of Carthage to make sure that crops could never grow there. And that is the Atlanticist model because if you know Carthage was able to start growing crops, they could start to have their own economy. And if they started to have their own economy, pretty soon they might start to have their own state. And if they started to have their own state, they might have their own army and they might be fighting again. So to make sure that nothing, nothing like Carthage could ever emerge again, the Romans ground salt into the fields of, of Carthage, right? That is the nature of imperialism. And I maintain that the modern version of this is what the United States is doing right now. And the USA went to Iraq, did they immediately, a lot of people thought we went to Iraq to get their oil. You ever hear this? Oh, we invaded to get their oil. When, when the United States invaded Iraq, they didn't immediately say, all right, start pumping that oil out of the ground, no. Oil exports in Iraq are roughly 10% of what they were under Saddam Hussein. Instead, the United States presided over years and years of ethnic war and turmoil and confusion by essentially grinding salt into the ground so that nothing good can grow. And in Afghanistan, for 20 years, the USA was in Afghanistan. Did they create a stable economy dominated by the United States so they could have wealth? No. Did they, did they, uh, did they start you know, pumping the, uh, the, the rare earth minerals out of Afghanistan's you know, mountains? No. What did they do? They insured, they, they, they created instability, they, they enabled the drug dealers and the drug poppy fields to sprout up throughout the country. Uh, they um, they you know, enabled ISIS and terrorist groups to set up shop. And as a result, uh, they made sure Afghanistan was very, very unstable, right? That's grinding salt into the, into the soil to make sure, to make sure, to make sure that nothing can grow there again. Right? This is this is the essence of, of imperialism. The Atlanticist model of imperialism is about holding back economic development. And it's very important to understand this because it's very important to understand this because a lot of people look at China and they say, well, China, you know, it wants one China, it wants Tibet. It wants the Uyghur regions, it wants Hong Kong, it wants Taiwan to all be one China. And that's imperialism. Ah, wrong. And a lot of people look at, at Russia and they say, oh, you know, 
Russia, uh, you know, Russia, you know, there was the the annexing of Crimea. And, uh, you know, a lot of Russians say life was better at the time of the Soviet Union. So that's imperialism. Ah, wrong, 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 wrong. Folks, if you want to understand, if you want to understand why that's wrong, I recommend you go and see a classic movie, one of the greatest movies made in history, made by the great film director, the father of the montage, Sergei Eisenstein. Go see the movie Ivan the Terrible. Ivan the Terrible. It's a movie made in the Soviet Union during World War II, and it's about Ivan the Terrible, who was a czar, who unified all of the Russian Empire. He brought all the territory of Russia together. And he's remembered as a great hero. Why? Why would they, this conqueror, right? He conquered this people, he conquered that people, he conquered Siberia, he conquered the Tatars, he conquered, why would he be remembered as a great person? Because when all those regions were brought together, that led to economic development. It was only when that part of the world was unified that you could have economic development. And the same in China. In China, there's a huge amount of admiration for the Qing dynasty, the Qing dynasty. And why do people love the Qing dynasty? They were pretty, pretty brutal. Why do people love them? Because they brought China together. They brought all of China together. Hong Kong, Tibet, Uyghur regions, Taiwan was all unified under the Qing dynasty. And when they were brought together, they could start economically developing together. A Eurasian empire and an Atlanticist empire are completely different, right? We call them both empires because this is the English language, okay? But the way the Romans ruled, the way the British ruled, the way Wall Street and London ruled the world is very different than the way than the way that what's it called? Uh, Ivan the Terrible ruled the world, ruled Russia. It's very different than the way the Qing Dynasty rules China. Completely different than how the Soviet Union led Russia under the leadership of Stalin. Completely different than how Mao and Deng Xiaoping and now Xi Jinping lead China. It's not the same thing at all. It, it is a completely different thing. And I've been to Crimea, folks. I've been to Crimea. Do you think the, the, the Russians are going to Crimea and, and arresting people for boiling their own salt? No. Do you think the, the Russians are going to Crimea and trying to keep Crimea poor so it can be a trade route in their global empire? No. It's the opposite. They have built one of the biggest bridges in the world in Crimea. Uh, they have done so much to economically develop it. And the same, the same for Hong Kong. I mean, look at Hong Kong, right? Look at Tibet. Look what they're doing in Tibet right now with the highways and all of this. Look what they're doing in the Uyghur regions, expanding access to the textile industry and, and, and poverty alleviate. It's a different thing. This is a different economic model. Now, the way I would generally talk about these things, if you'd have run into me a year ago or two years ago, I would have just said, well, this is socialism versus capitalism. Yeah, but it's more than that, okay? Because Russia is not socialist at this time. You know, Russia, they do not consider themselves Marxist. There's, you know, it's very much, there's, there's very much a lot of market stuff that goes on. And, you know, China is a socialist country. But if you go back to the Qing dynasty, if you go back to Ivan the Terrible, there is just a fundamentally different method of development. There's a fundamentally different road of development. And this is Eurasian civilization versus Atlanticist civilization. 
There is economic development and technological progress on the mainland versus control of the trade routes. This is city builders and vandals, folks. And yes, socialism and capitalism is a big factor in it. Yes, yeah, that's true. And yes, you know, the development of, of feudalism and the modern capitalist system and imperialism, as Lenin explained, yes, that's all part of it. But there's also the, acts, the, the issue of geopolitics. There's also the issue of geopolitics. Western Europe and the United States, we have a huge access to oceans. Whereas Russia and China are, most of it is very landlocked. And that leads to different patterns in civilization. You know, the, the individualism, the extreme individualism of the Anglo culture uh, in the United States and, and, you know, the Wall Street stuff, free market, life, liberty, you know, all of this liberalism is largely rooted in having an economy that is centered around trade and ocean access. Whereas the collectivism, you know, the collectivism that you find in Confucianism and the, uh, the collective identity that you find uh, in, in Russian culture historically and in the Russian Orthodox Church, these things are rooted in having a largely landlocked country and having development on the land. There are differences, okay? There are differences. Geopolitics is a factor. So is socialism. So is capitalism. So is the, the overthrow of feudalism. So is, there's many, many, so is religion, right? So is ethnic, I mean, there's many, many, many factors here. But the imperialists know this. This is big new Brzezinski knew, knew this. This is why he wrote his book, The Grand Chessboard, right? Um, the Russians know this. The Chinese know this. Geopolitics is a factor. And the essence of Atlanticist empires is they hold back economic development and they function as the middleman in global trade. And the essence of Eurasian civilizations, I shouldn't even call them empires, but civilizations, is they focus on economic development by unifying great territory. Um, you know, uh, is this Dugan's concept? I don't think so. Dugan, Dugan talks about this sometimes, but Dugan got this from others. The, the school of, of ge geopolitics and Eurasianism has been around for a long time, and we shouldn't underestimate it. And folks in China have been talking about this for a long time. And, and you know, the British, they really started this, uh, you know, with their theory of controlling the world with the Navy. Uh, you know, the, the theory of geopolitics really was the British who started geopolitics by explaining that they could dominate the world with their Navy. Geopolitics is a whole school of thought. It's a whole school of thought that a lot of people that are, are well-trained in Marxism don't look into. It's called geopolitics. Um, but here's the secret, and I'll move on from this because we got, you know, got a lot of super chats to get through. Here's the secret. Look at the United States. Look at the United States. Look at a map. Right? New York City, where I'm at, yeah, we're right next to the ocean. Boston, right next to the ocean. Los Angeles, right next to the ocean, sure. But look at the United States. There's a vast heartland in the United States. There is a vast heartland. There's Utah, there's Idaho, there's, there's Iowa and Kansas. And if we had a leadership in the United States, a government of action that did not have an Atlanticist worldview, but used the power of the state to force economic development to move inward. The United States could become a very, very wealthy country very, very quickly. 
You know, there's a reason that, you know, they talk about the heartland of the United States has, has declined. Pittsburgh, you know, Gary, Indiana, forget it. Uh, you know, Minneapolis, Minnesota, Michigan. There's a reason. There's a reason for all of this. There's a reason that the power in the United States is now concentrated in New York City and in Southern California. If you watch American television, 90% of the time, you're only seeing New York City or Southern California. There's a reason for this. This isn't an accident. This is because Atlanticism has largely prevailed. However, if we had a government of action in the United States, the United States economy could drastically shift there's a reason that William Z. Foster, the leader of the Communist Party, in his book, Toward Soviet America, he said that Chicago, Chicago should be the capital of the United States, not a slave-owning hub, Washington, D.C., the District of Columbia, right near, right between Virginia and Maryland. They should call it, you know, Slave Ownersville. That's what Washington, D.C. should be called, the Slave Ownersville. That's really what it is, right? You know, Slave Ownersville. Uh, but, but instead of slave ownersville, Washington, D.C., District of Columbia being the capital of the country, instead of a city that, you know, a city modeled on the Roman Empire, you know that? The, the streets of Washington, D.C. are actually modeled on Rome. Why do you think there's a bunch of columns? You know, all the buildings have columns in Washington, D.C. But William Z. Foster said Chicago should be the capital of the United States of America. Can you believe that? Chicago should be the capital. The heartland of the country is where the future of the United States is. Chicago should be the capital. The Windy City. There's a reason for that. Because the Soviet Union was the main source of inspiration for the Communist Party. And the Soviet Union was emphasizing industrial development, not domination of trade routes. Were Lenin and Mao analyzing Eurasian conditions? Yes. Yes, they were, right? Lenin, as you'll notice, switched Marxism. The party of new type that the Bolsheviks formed, you know, the party of new type, that was not a Western liberal political model. It was a secret society of people who gave the whole of their lives. It was much similar to the Decembrists, which had been a revolutionary conspiracy to bring down Tsar Nicholas I, was very similar to the old believers, right? It was a, a society of people who gave the whole of their lives to engage in agitation, propaganda, democratic centralism. Yes, the, the party of new type model that Lenin developed was very much a Eurasian model. It was not Atlanticist. And that's why the Social Democrats hated it. Lenin also said that nationalism among formerly colonized people should be supported. Lenin came out with a theory of imperialism, imperialism, the highest stage of capitalism, arguing that, arguing, you know, that imperialism is holding back development. Yes, there is a very Eurasian tinge to a lot of Lenin's writings. He's writing it, yes, in Bolshevik and, and in Marx in terms, but he's very much writing as someone from Russia. Lenin was from Russia. And he understood Russia. He understood if they were going to overthrow the czar, they, they couldn't have you know, some loose debating society. They had to have a, a secretive conspiratorial organization. And 
is it a good strategy to call for a no vote or no confidence vote election period in a two-party race? No vote or a no confidence vote. Strategy. So yes, and Mao Zedong was even more so. Right? If you look at the way the Chinese Communist Party operated, it was more inspired by the Taiping uprising. It was more inspired by traditional Chinese culture. Um, yeah, the Chinese Communist Party was uniquely Chinese. And we need to develop a socialism in the United States that's uniquely American. Um, and yes, in a lot of ways, Lenin and Mao were both applying Marxism in a Eurasian way. They were applying Karl Marx's economic theories to a Eurasian society. And it looked different, and that's why Trotskyites couldn't stand it. Trotskyism is an Atlanticist form of Marxism. Leon Trotsky said, New York City is the foundry where the fate of mankind will be forged. No, Chicago is the foundry where the fate of mankind will be forged. No, Minneapolis is the fate, foundry where the fate of mankind will be forged. No, 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 no. If Trotsky said New York City is the foundry where the fate of mankind will be forged, he doesn't understand the United States of America. He, he has an Atlanticist worldview. New York City, I live here. It's more like Europe than, than most of the country. New York City is like Europe. It's like Paris. It's like, uh, it's, it, you know, it's like Florence. I don't know. New York City is, is very much, is very much a, practically a European, a Europeanized holdout in the United States. It's not like the rest of the country. That's probably why I like it here, because I'm such a weird intellectual guy. But that said, you know, you know, so there you go. But anyway, Trotskyism was trying to hold on to some of the Atlanticism of Marx. Marx, you know, was a, a German who lived in Britain, and he had, he had very correct economic theories, but he had a worldview that in some cases was very, you know, you know Eurocentric. I mean, people criticize Marx for that. Um, but Lenin rescued Marxism. And he made it apply to Eurasian conditions. And Mao applied it to Chinese conditions. And now we have to figure out how, how it is we can tap into the anti-Atlanticist sentiments among the broad masses of Americans. And how can we use socialism to rebuild America as part of the global anti-imperialist bloc? How can the United States reemerge as part of the Belt and Road Initiative? as part of the Bolivarian alternative for Latin America? How can the United States reemerge as part of the Eurasian economic uh, union that Russia is building? How can we reinvent the U.S. economy to make the U.S. economy based on growth? And how can we make the USA have a relationship with countries around the world that's not win, win, uh, you know, and it's not zero sum, how, when, where, where we gain by trading with countries, right? How can we reinvent the US economy to be like the Chinese economy or the Russian economy or the Nicaraguan economy? How can we start investing in our population and trading on a win-win basis? Um, you know, that's what we need to be figuring out. And these are deeper questions. And I, that was a very long answer. There we go. The inevitability of socialism. Well, this is a this is a concept in Marxism. Historical inevitability. Historical inevitability. Right. The idea that it is inevitable uh, that eventually the workers will overthrow the capitalists. Right. That material conditions will force it to eventually happen. And this leads to a very bizarre philosophical conversation. Right. Well, if it's inevitable, why are we doing this? Why are you on there talking about it, Caleb? Why don't you just put your feet up and let the inevitable happen? Well, part of the inevitability is me doing something, 
right? And Karl Marx, I believe there's letters that he wrote to Engels, and he says, you know, according to my theories, I shouldn't exist, right? I, I'm not necessary. I just need to sit back, and it'll just kind of happen. Like, why are we doing this? What is the role? Why is there agency? There's a very important book by uh, Plekhanov, Yuri Plekhanov, uh, the father of Russian Marxism, called The Role of the Individual in History. And in that book, he's trying to figure out why are there heroes? Why are there great leaders of movements? Why do they exist? Right? Um, if it's all economic determinism, it's all you know, it's all inevitable. Why? Why do some people become great heroes? And why are there individuals who you know? I mean, how do you get a Che Guevara? And this is one of the deep questions of Marxism, right? And the, yes, these things are not inevitable. What about World War III? If the world got nuked, we would definitely not have socialism. Rosa Luxemburg rejected straight up the inevitability of socialism. She said it was possible for Western civilization to degenerate into barbarism, right? Something like the fall of the Roman Empire could occur. After the Roman Empire, civilization did not reach a higher stage. The Roman Empire disintegrated into a lower form of civilization. The European population did not get back to what it was for 1,100 years. So, you know, yes, you know, you want to talk about inevitability, but at the end of the day, nothing's inevitable, right? A meteorite could hit the earth and that would be the end of every system, right? I mean, it's like nothing is ever inevitable, okay? When Marxists talk about historical inevitability, they're understanding the direction society is moving in, the objective laws of historical materialism, but nothing, nothing is ever inevitable. All right, Venezuela peace talks in Mexico. Well, look, uh, Venezuela has been, you know, just suffering at the hands of the U.S. imperialists. It has been vicious what they have done. They have killed thousands of people. Thousands of people have died as a result of the U.S. imperialist economic war against Venezuela. Um, but yet, amid all of that, the, the Bolivarian government has the loyalty of the population. All their coup attempts have failed. Um, the solid base of support for Bolivarian socialism is well intact. Um, but that said, not all of the Venezuelan opposition is united. There are different factions within the Venezuelan opposition. There's Juan Guaido, the U.S. puppet. There is the old right wing. There are different forces in the Venezuelan opposition. Now, it's possible that the Bolivarian government of Venezuela could strengthen itself by reaching an arrangement with some of the opposition forces and bringing them into the government, right? Now, not all of them. Obviously, I mean, you can't bring in, there's certain forces you just can't bring in, right? You know, um, uh, Leopoldo Lopez, you can't bring him in. He's a terrorist, right? Uh, but, you know, there might there are some forces in the opposition that maybe uh, are willing to negotiate. And then Venezuela could be in a stronger position if they had some representation in the government. So we just have to see how these talks you know, continue, and there you go. Um, but, you know, it, it's up to the Venezuelans, ultimately. You know, Iran made their nuclear deal. Uh, you know, uh, you know, sometime, you know, China and Vietnam have had their market reforms, and revolution, you know, sometimes revolutions have to compromise. Sometimes they, they don't. But, you know, but Venezuela has to make tactical decisions about what is in their ultimate interest. Um, so there you go. You know, the Sandinistas, when they came back to power in 2006, it was a much broader coalition 
than when they than than they'd been in power in the 1980s. Um, you know, the, the government of Nicaragua is a much broader coalition now than in the 1980s. Um, and that was necessary, right? And it may be possibly necessary for the, the you know, the United Socialist Party to expand its coalition, right? It has the patriotic poll, which is various parties, um, but it may be necessary for them to expand their coalition and bring some elements that are currently part of the opposition into, into the Bolivarian government. It's possible. Now let's see if it happens or not. If they want, you know, I'm, I'm sure that Maduro is not gonna do anything that would lead to a counter-revolution. Uh, but it may be necessary to expand the United Front. And it may be that the USA has alienated so many of its allies that there are forces in the opposition who at this point are, are not trusting the United States. And they say, well, maybe we can make a deal with Maduro and get back into the government. Uh, so maybe that's the situation. You have to remember that. The United States has proven in places like Afghanistan to not really be a good ally, not really have your back in many of the countries. So there you go. Bukele in El Salvador is a bourgeois nationalist. Um, he's not a socialist, um, but he is very much somebody. He's a lot like um, he's a lot like Erdogan in Turkey. He's a lot like um, Modi in India, uh, and he really likes Bitcoin. He loves Bitcoin, and he likes uh, the Belt and Road and China's infrastructure investment programs. He's not a U.S. puppet. That's why the USA can't stand him. Now he's not he's not a socialist like they are in Nicaragua or Venezuela, um, but he's he's. You know, a Bonapartist, I would say, um, and he's done a lot of things that the imperialists are, are not particularly happy about. Um, so Bukele is an interesting one, and we'll see how he develops. Now, often there are people like Bukele who, when the imperialists go after them, that pushes them into the anti-imperialist camp and towards socialism. Uh, however, you have figures like Modi, who the imperialists attack them, and they just you know roll over and start selling their people off. Right? That's why the farmers' rebellions have happened in India because. Um, because of the fact that uh, that Modi, you know, in response to the USA putting pressure on him, he just rolled over and went all the way into the anti-China camp, embraced neoliberal economic reforms in India. So there you go. All right, wokeness derailing the working class. Well, wokeness, wokeness um, is toxic in a lot of ways. Um, wokeness is not Marxism, and uh, it's uh, it's postmodernism. It's the politics of deterioration. Um, it's people getting their rage out. It's libidinal release. Um, and, and, you know, I mean, my, my Kamala Harris book is basically, I didn't call it that in the Kamala Harris book. My whole book, Kamala Harris and the Future of America, is basically a critique of wokeness and where it came from and who's benefiting from it and how it's not Marxism. So go read my Kamala Harris book or listen to the upcoming, upcoming, up and coming audio version that'll soon be brought to you by Char Char Darling, beloved member of this community. All right. Why did William Z. Foster call Gandhi a faker? Well, you'll have to remember that William Z. Foster called Gandhi a faker in his book Toward Soviet America uh, because of the fact that Gandhi uh, was anti-communist and he was opposing armed struggle against the British. But communists have a big critique of Gandhi. You have to remember Gandhi was sympathetic to the Nazis during World War II because the British were the main colonizer of India. Gandhi wrote some glowing things about Hitler and he made statements to the effect that Hitler's better than the British, etc. cetera. Um, all right. Um, 
And you have to also remember that there was not a socialist revolution in India. You know, after after the Second World War, when India got its independence, it never got um, it never went all the way to socialism. Um, so, you know, Gandhi Gandhi is a figure that many communists are very critical of. Um, there's a, a long you know communist critique of Gandhi. Um, and I mean, there's a lot of other progressives who critiqued him, but his, his role during the Second World War was not good. Um, that's one thing that people critique about him. Uh, and on top of that, um, you know, he was not an advocate of class struggle. Um, you know, his, his, you know, his pacifist worldview, he's a complex figure. He's a complex figure. That's all I can say. Like any figure, right? Now, that's not to say there couldn't be an alliance with somebody like Gandhi, but in India's politics, he was against the communists. He was definitely not an ally of the communists of India at any point. Um, and he was probably more sympathetic to fascism than to communism. So there you go. Um, why are we having a crisis in democracy right now? We're having a crisis in democracy because the rate of profit is falling. We are entering a capitalist crisis, right? The rate of profit is in decline. The problem of overproduction is exacerbated by the tendency of the falling rate of profit. And when there is a crisis in the economy, the ruling class divides into factions that seek to liquidate the crisis by seizing control of the state and using it to manage the economy. However, they all want the economy managed at the expense of someone else. Um, and that's the, the problem. None of the capitalists want to be the one to pay for the crisis. And this is the, this is the problem of capitalism in decay. Um, so yeah, Bonapartism, the effort of one faction of the ruling class to, you know, to take control and assert its will over others. Uh, that is what naturally happens in a capitalist crisis. You can read Karl Marx's pamphlet, The 18th Premier of Louis Bonaparte. Why did Obama win the Nobel Prize? He won the Nobel Prize because the Nobel Prize largely uh, represents the aspirations of European capital, I would argue. The Nobel Prize, like the Vatican, like a lot of institutions on the European mainland, it represents the aspirations of European capitalists. And European capitalists were really offended by the Bush administration. And Barack Obama, you remember, he campaigned in Berlin for the presidency uh, and that he made a big deal. He was going to restore relations with the NATO countries after Bush burned a bunch of bridges. And that Obama was seen as somebody who was going to make America get along with Europe once again. And so because of that, the Nobel Prize was given to him uh, to make a statement about, you know, we like this guy and we're hoping that he can he can make the United States and Western Europe march in lockstep again. And he tried. Uh, it didn't work out too well. The execution of Troy Davis. Good question from our friend Michael in Ithaca. Uh, Troy Davis. That was a week before the Occupy Wall Street protests began. An innocent African-American man. Um, an innocent African-American man was executed. Um, and everybody, including all kinds of Republicans, were speaking up and saying, this man is innocent. And they still executed him in the state of Georgia. It was horrendous. Um, it was just a horrendous, horrendous event. And the whole world was saying, you cannot execute this guy. He didn't commit the crime. But it didn't matter. Uh, and the execution went ahead. And it was it was very horrendous, the execution of Troy Davis. And they faked, they faked us out. Uh, the Supreme Court put a stop on it and then changed their minds at the last minute. The whole thing was absolutely horrendous. Uh, and, you know, the Occupy Wall Street protests had already started, I think. Um, but, but then, you know, there was a protest for Troy Davis, a very big demonstration. And yeah, that was just, I remember that very vividly. I was part of those demonstrations and protests. So there you go. 
All right. The mafia used to combat communism. Yes, uh, mainly on the docks of Europe. My understanding is that uh, after the Second World War, uh, there was a fear of the communist parties of France and Italy and other countries uh, and their influence among dock workers. Uh, you know, the idea was the Soviet Union would then have the ability to shut down the docks. They didn't want that. So the mafia was used against dock workers unions and the CIA funded the mafia to basically kick the communists out of the unions and prevent uh, the Soviet Union from having the ability to shut down trade. Uh, that was their fear. Um, you know, um, that in Germany as well, from what I understand. Um, I'm sure involvement with the mafia was much bigger than that. And you can read about Operation Gladio, which was the CIA's effort to make sure that uh, the to make sure that the communists never won the elections in Italy. And, you know, many people look into the involvement of the Bay of Pigs invasion. The mafia was apparently involved in it as well. And, you know, organized crime elements have been used to break strikes many times. There's a whole history of that. All right. Um, a more focused version of the book, The Anglo-American Establishment by Carol Quigley. Well, look, see, the issue with that book and the issue with a lot of the stuff that people talk about the British Empire is that it's not literally the British Empire, okay? The Queen of England doesn't sit up there and say, all right, it's not like that. It's that there is a network of elites in the United States, Council on Foreign Relations, the Rockefellers that are tied in with Britain and have an Anglo perspective, okay? And they're tied in with houses of finance and with the oil banking establishment in the United States. They... They have an Anglo perspective, they're tied in with Britain, and they're tied in with the British financial system. But it's not a big conspiracy, right? It's not as, you know, and, and the problem with that book is that a lot of people read that book and they take it literally. They, they make it sound like, yes, there's a vast conspiracy. It's like, no, it's not a vast conspiracy. There's just networks of wealth and power that have been long entrenched. They go back to Cecil Rhodes. When Cecil Rhodes died, he left the money in his estate. Cecil Rhodes was the colonizer of Africa, right? Rhodesia, that's what Zimbabwe used to be called before it won its independence, the apartheid state of Rhodesia. And Cecil Rhodes, he left money in his, in his will to create the Rhodes Scholar Program and to create in his will what he called a secret society to promote the British Empire. And what that really was was networks of influence that shared the Anglo perspective on world events. Is a vote of no confidence a strategy? Well, in the United States, we don't have the ability to do that, right? The way the Electoral College works, um, we just don't have that ability. That's not an option. I think there's one state, I think Nevada. In Nevada, in the United States, you can vote none of the above. But in most of the United States, that's not an option. And the way the Electoral College is set up is if, if one candidate does not have the majority of the electoral votes, then the US Congress determines who is president. So if you were to have a vote of no confidence where the majority of Americans just voted no confidence and the majority of the states didn't give their electoral votes to any candidate, that would just result in the, the vote in the United States being thrown back to the Congress and the Congress would pick the president. I think it would be the U.S. Senate would probably vote on who the president was. So it wouldn't help. Um, but I know in other countries, in countries with a parliamentary system, a vote of no confidence and things like that, you know, it, it, it has an impact. But here in the United States... The way our, our, they call it a federal system as opposed to a parliamentary system, the way our federal system is set up, it wouldn't make a difference. Um, um, Maduro, why is he more demonized than, uh, than Morales? Simple. Morales did not change the state, right? The military in Bolivia has not changed. And that's why he was able to be overthrown. Maduro uh, 
presides over a government that has changed the state. New constitution, military is trained in Cuba, new armed groups. The Venezuelan state has changed. The Bolivian state has not changed. And that is the difference. Maduro leads a state. They can't overthrow Maduro because the state, the military, you know, the intelligence agencies, uh, the police are all in the hands of the proletariat in Venezuela. In Bolivia, that's not the case. There is a progressive popular front, you know, Marxist government, but the military, the police, et cetera, are still in the hands of the capitalists, largely. And because of that, um, you know, Morales was never demonized because they, he never had the same amount of power. And they were able to ultimately remove him when they wanted to. And even before that, he didn't have the same amount of power. Now, he was able to implement central planning of the economy. That was good. But the state had not completely changed. In Nicaragua, the state has changed. In Venezuela, the state has changed. But in a lot of these countries, like Peru, um, you know, like like. Bolivia, the state apparatus is not in the hands of the proletariat. And because of that, uh, that's why the USA still recognizes their elections, number one, because their elections are not completely socialist. And because of that, the country has, is not solidly, you know, in Bolivia, they were able to overthrow Morales. And now the government that they've got back in in Bolivia, you know, it's it's more anti-imperialist than what was there before, but it's still, you know, they still, it's it's not what Morales was. Morales was far more revolutionary than what's there now. I just have to be real with you. Um, you know, that you have to change the state. This is why Lenin's book, The State and Revolution, is important. And it's important to not, you know, people read that book and they think that means, oh, go grab a gun and act crazy. That's not what it means. It means that the essence, the essence of power in a society comes from the, you know, the armed men, the military, the policing agencies, the intelligence apparatus. And if that doesn't change, you don't have socialism. Right? You can elect progressives all you want, but if the state does not change, you don't have socialism. The Soviet Union, the state changed. You know, China, the state changed, right? Cuba, the state changed. Venezuela, the state changed, right? Nicaragua, the state changed. Here, uh, you know, uh, in, in Bolivia, it didn't change, right? Uh, you know, and, and because it didn't change, it was vulnerable. Um, and that's Harold Sullivan is quoting Mao there. That's what Mao meant when he said political power grows out of the barrel of a gun, that ultimately the state apparatus must change hands, right? If we're going to have socialism in the United States, it's not enough that we simply get some socialist elected. Obviously, there would have to be a new constitution. There would have to be a new military. There would have to be a new FBI and a new CIA, and there'd have to be new policing agencies, right? You cannot build socialism with a capitalist state. The project of transforming society with socialism involves creating a new state apparatus. That's what Lenin is saying. Um, and uh, there you go. And I've always been unequivocal about that, but that doesn't mean we should advocate violent revolution. We don't advocate violent revolution. We want a peaceful transition, but we recognize that that peaceful transition involves the creation of a new state. And that's a very important point, right? That you cannot build socialism. And we recognize the capitalists are often very violent and they prevent a peaceful transition, but that's them, that's not us. We don't, we want a peaceful transition. Unlikely they would give it to us, but we want it, and that's what we advocate. We don't advocate civil war. We don't advocate left adventurism or illegal activities or terrorism. No, we advocate a peaceful democratic transition to socialism. But that transition would involve a new state, right? Ultimately, it would involve that. Uh, so there you go. All right, I think that that is where we will end for tonight. Um, but please, if you can send a donation to the John Brown Volunteers Texas campaign right down below, please send a donation to the John Brown Volunteers Texas campaign. Absolutely needed. 
Uh, if you can, you know, the link is right down below to the PayPal. Shoot us a donation on PayPal. It would be greatly appreciated. I want to thank everyone uh, who's been here tonight. Shout out to the John Brown volunteers and the hard work they're doing in Texas. Shout out to all the people organizing for the Center for Political Innovation. Um, you know, great things are happening. A new upsurge in the struggle against U.S. imperialism is now emerging throughout the world. Ever since World War II, U.S. imperialism and its followers have been continuously launching wars of aggression, but the people of various countries have been continuously waging revolutionary wars to defeat their aggression. While the danger of a new world war still exists and the people of all countries must get prepared, revolution is the main trend in the world today. While the danger of a new world war still exists and the people of all countries must get prepared, revolution is the main trend in the world today. Good night.